Hey fellow brain pickers, how would you like to get featured as a guest on multiple podcast shows like this one and get massive exposure? Getfeatured.media will get you featured on targeted shows. They'll design a custom bio page, pitch you to the hosts, schedule a time, prepare you for the shows and promote you so you get even more brand exposure. Head over to getfeatured.media to get major publicity for your brand. Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hi, fellow brain pickers, and welcome to episode 64 of Can I Pick Your Brain? Do you ever worry about how much time you waste on social media? Have you ever heard the expression, Facebook likes don't pay the bills? Well, what if they could? What if you can turn your social media conversations into real cash? Sounds crazy, right? Well, my guest today is helping companies do just that with her latest innovation, Verifeed, a strategic social intelligence platform that has proven to get you a return on authenticity. Melinda Whitstock is an award-winning journalist and has been an anchor for BBC World, ABC News and MSNBC. She is also a serial entrepreneur and is the brains behind the crowdsourced app called Ask Your Lawmaker, engaging more than 3 million people, and the crowd collaboration app Newsit that Marissa Mayer of Yahoo described as the future of news. Her public speaking career has taken her on stages such as South by Southwest, the National Press Club, and Google, among many others. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Melinda Whitstock. Melinda, welcome to the show, and thanks for letting me pick your brain. Hey, Daniel. It's great to join you. I hear that you're driving in a car. <laughs> I am driving in a car. Well, I'm not actually doing the driving. I'm a passenger in a car. You're the passenger, um, okay. But yes. Always on the move. Always on the move. <laughs> By the way, talk about being on the other side of the mic. I mean, you're, you're usually the one interviewing, right? That's right. I mean, you know, I've, for many, many years as a journalist, I, I prided myself on, you know, asking the right questions mm -hmm. or informed questions. And it's an interesting parallel with what we do at Verifeed because it's really all the data and insights in the world don't mean much unless you know how to, I guess, interrogate that data. Mm -hmm. So at Verifeed, we're looking at all these millions of social conversations and figuring out what to ask of those questions, what to look for to find the, the really valuable nuggets or insights that our clients can profit from. Mm, it sounds exciting, and I'm sure uh, my listeners want to find out basically how they can turn their social media into a cash machine. But before we talk about that, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Like, how did you get into journalism, and, and what makes a great journalist? You know, it's really interesting what made me get into journalism. I was always just a very curious person. Mm -hmm. um, I think my first foray into journalism was around, I think I was about 10 years old. And um, I was also very entrepreneurial as a kid. So I had this little neighborhood newspaper yes. that I used to go around and, and make people read. Um, was that I, the Montreal Mirror? Might have been painful for them, but, um, but they did. And, and I made a little money doing that. And um, But I was always wow. very curious about what motivated people to take certain actions 
you know, what was the driving psychology, um, you know, behind, you know, what they cho chose to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not really sure where that came from. <laughs> um, you know, I think if you grow up as a young kid with like divorced parents and you're try maybe maybe that investigative bug, I was trying to figure out what went on with them you know who knows right it's right. something like that it's probably deeply buried somewhere you know okay. um but um no i've always really in, in, enjoyed um uh, journalism and writing and i think what attracted me to journalism more than anything else and it's the same thing with entrepreneurialism every mm -hmm. day is different um um there's there's a, a real connective tissue between being an entrepreneur and being a journalist as right. being a journalist you have to be very enterprising you're always trying to figure out you know, what you're going to be writing about that day, what you're going to be asking. Mm -hmm. um, every day is different. You're talking to people from all walks of life. Um, and, you know, as they say in the business, you're only as good as your last story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So this better so, be a good this better be a good show, yeah. Melinda, because otherwise <laughs> my podcast is going down in the ratings. Let me ask you this. What was do you, do you remember your first the first time you went live on TV, for example? I'd love to like get 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 in your head there. What were you? Were you nervous? What were you thinking? Like, did you bomb? Were you a success? Take us back to that fir the first time you went on live. Yeah. So um, when I was a correspondent on the Times of London, um, mm -hmm. I started breaking a lot of big stories. And as a result of those stories, I started to be interviewed on the BBC and Channel 4 News and ITN um, um, in, in England, um, you know, about my stories. So I kind of got used to doing that. Okay. And then my first job doing live television was for BBC Breakfast News. And I was the media correspondent at that time for the Times. So I wrote about this new thing called the internet. And uh, <laughs> I wrote You're aging about yourself there, Melinda. <laughs> yeah, like cable TV and the de deregulation of, you know, all, all that, you know, and the business of, of media as well. So I was invited to review the newspapers on BBC Breakfast News. And it was a great, it was so much fun. I did it about once a week. And it was a little bit John Stewart-like, okay. you know, the, the, no. the comedian where you would take, there were at the time 12 national dailies. And this is really apropos for our particular moment in history right now, mm -hmm. because I would look at all these papers and they'd all be writing about the same thing, arriving at totally different conclusions, sometimes with the same facts <laughs> and interpreting right. those differently. Or, you know, and, and I did this two and a half minutes kind of paper review and I really enjoyed doing it but I, I was terribly nervous mm -hmm. the first time I did it you know I mean it was like live television yeah um but apparently my nerves didn't show although I was I was feeling it I think everybody gets nervous to begin with um and then there were other times you know with really really big stories like the death of Princess Diana or the Oklahoma City bombing wow. or some you of covered, those when, when I was live on the air you know, in those moments where you're, you don't have any pictures, you don't have a script, you, wow. you're, you're, you're it, there's nothing between you. I mean, you're, you, you are responsible. You are the final arbiter mm -hmm. of what you're telling millions of people. And so those moments are pretty nerve wracking as well. And the only thing you can do is just be very, very clear about what you know and like what you don't know. And, and uh, at the end of the day, your integrity is everything. And you started a publication called Montreal Mirror. That wasn't the same publication when you were 10, was it? 
No, that's one. <laughs> a, a different one, right? Okay. Um, I think I was ni- I think I was nineteen. Nineteen, and you and re- that reached a quarter of a million readers a week. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So, so that happened because. On my student newspaper, it's actually a pretty funny story. So I went to McGill University in Montreal in Canada, and there was a daily newspaper. And the year I was news editor, the student council was trying to get rid of our budget. And that was kind of awkward. So I had to figure out how to make money for the newspaper. And I was a news editor, so I was like crossing a real boundary here. Like you're not really, if you're a journalist, you're not supposed to be concerned about the money or whatever but mm-hmm. i was yeah. so i crossed kind of a big line there and i decided that the newspaper should have an advertising department and we should sell ads and i soon realized that we didn't have a big enough distribution to make that work mm-hmm. so um i decided that the the mcgill daily should be sold citywide and then i thought hmm, why would anyone want to read an english language student newspaper and a you know <laughs> Uh, you know, a French city. Like, <laughs> so how am I going to make that work? Yeah. And then I thought, aha, like entertainment listings. There were no English language entertainment listings, music listings, restaurants, any of that. So um, we created a like a department, an editorial department at the student newspaper mm-hmm. um, to go and create that content. And we increased the distribution. We figured out how to do that. And then we sold ads. So the Montreal Mirror was really an extension of that several years, you know, and actually at, about a at, year later. At the peak, what was it What was it bringing in a month on a monthly revenue? Oh, God, I'm trying to remember. It's like I, I'm going to date myself because it's so <laughs> long ago. But I remember when we, like, sold our first ad and we were so excited, you know, that yeah. was really, really pretty cool. It was covering our budget. We had, um, I think at the height um, for the, are you talking about the, the, the McGill Daily at the height of that? You know, we were making like, I don't know, like $5,000 and then kind of $7,500 like Mm -hmm. a month and then $10,000 a month like that. Montreal Mirror, it took a while for that to become profitable. I had long since left. I I think I'd moved to England by the time that became profitable. And so it wasn't your, you didn't, you didn't actually own 100% of the Montreal Mirror? No, 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 no. Okay. No, there were, there were a whole series, you know, there was a group of us, there were probably about three of us that founded it. That's really cool. And then you ended up selling it, right? Yes. How much did you sell it for? Are you, are you able to I, share? I can't, I can't say. <laughs> I thought you'd say that, but it's worth asking. <laughs> I, always, I always say it's, it's good, it helped with college bills anyway, right. put it that yeah. way. <laughs> then you, you also started an app called uh, Newsit, right? Yeah, so that came later on. I'd been running an organization called Capital News Connection um, here in Washington, and we were reporting from Congress, um, and our whole um, mission or ethos really was to make news relevant to people where they lived and worked. And at the time, very few Americans were voting in elections. Nobody knew who their congressman or woman was. Right. A very, very low participation. And 9-11 had happened, and people were talking about our democracy and how important it was mm-hmm. to defend our democracy. And I agree with that. And I thought, well, what could I do as a journalist um, you know, to, to, to really make a difference? And I... I decided that Tip O'Neill, the the longtime Speaker of the House, the late Speaker of the House, had said mm-hmm. famously that all politics is local. In other words, it's relevant to people's daily lives. So, but the way 
the news was being reported was not like that. It was completely irrelevant to people and they were tuning out. So Capital News Connection set about changing that. We reported on how national decisions impacted locally. And we created a really interesting business model that allowed us to personalize at scale. And that's uh, very difficult to do um, with content. So around the time, so Capital News Connection was winning all these awards, you know, for our journalism. um, And we were doing great stuff. But around that time, I started to get very intrigued with the concept of crowdsourcing um, uh, and um, social networking and how this could, these tools could be applied um, to news. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first thing that we did, um, I came up with this idea of ask your lawmaker, yeah. which allowed citizens to ask any questions they wanted of their elected representatives. And then our journalists who are located in the Capitol building could, could, could answer, get those questions answered. Mm. Um, so for instance, people would, you know, um, upload a question to ask your lawmaker. Other people would vote on which questions that they most wanted asked. Mm-hmm. So then our correspondents could say, you know, you know, speaker, this question comes from 950 people wow. in 28 states. That's incredible. And it was incredibly powerful. And, and, and this is a long time ago. This is 2008. Whoa. And ancient. we grew it to 3 million people in 2008. So leading up to um, President Obama's election. And so like people were getting very, very involved. It was good timing for us. And it was fascinating. And I mean, here's the thing that I discovered that's really relevant to all the people who run startups that are listening to this podcast right now. Yeah. What was funny is that I found that the citizens asking the questions, when the citizens asked the questions, um, the stories that resulted were more monetizable. Like they were more profitable, right? Because citizens were asking better questions than the journalists were, right. which is embarrassing to admit. But, but <laughs> for a journalist, but um, yeah, no, they were asking really amazing questions, and and for whatever reason, they were succeeding in getting the politicians off their scripts, mm. um, and the answers were more interesting from the politicians. So I thought, hmm, this is interesting. So this is a real a way that uh, crowdsourcing can really actually be profitable. Not only does it speak to the bottom line, you have a lot of people um, contributing to a story that aren't, you know, being paid, right? Hmm. Um, But they have different perspectives that when you combine all these perspectives together, right, you have more of a likelihood at finding something that resembles truth, right? Because you can see patterns in that so in journalism it's known as the two source rule that it's not true unless two people have checked it out Mm -hmm. and i thought wow wait a minute what if we could have a a hundred source rule or a thousand source rule or a ten thousand source rule and that really was the birth of news it well, it's very interesting um, you say that because with Donald under- Trump coming out with his fake news, again, I don't want to get political. I-, I told you this before we went on. I didn't want to get political. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but it's a too politics tempting. free zone. Yes. Well, Donald Trump said, you know, recently about the fake news thing. So I think you you know, what you're saying is, is really onto something is that people don't necessarily trust, you know, the, the you know, journalists per se, right? I have to be careful what I say here. Obviously, I'm speaking to a journalist. Um, but. I think what you're onto is, is is incredible. Is that people trust the the 
their peers, right? If their peers say this is what we believe in, then they trust that more than just you know, okay, this is what the Sunday Times you know has come out with, right? So absolutely, absolutely, and that in in a moment we can talk about this because that is the intellectual underpinning, really, of Verifeed, what I'm yeah. doing now. But you know, in the case of in the case of Newsit, it's so funny. I mean, you know, so Newsit was launched in 2010. It was way ahead of its time because you yeah. know I used to go out and try and get funding, like fundraise for it. And people would say, "Hey, so you know, Melinda, what makes you think that people will contribute content?" And I'm like, they are, they are, they are, you know, because it was user-generated content was still kind of in its infancy. Yeah. Um, you know, so people were really just beginning, really, you know, beginning to do that. And I say, but they are, and they'd say, yeah, but okay, maybe, but what makes you think mobile's going to be big? Cause, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it was like a mobile app, you know. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, wow. oh my god, come on, it is right. Um, and then they'd say, well, look, you're going to have so much data, you're going to be overwhelmed with all this big data. Right. Like, how are you going to store all that data? And I'd say, well, there's this new thing. It's called the cloud. And they'd be like, what makes you think the cloud is going to work? <laughs> so you, you see where we were innovating on so many fronts all at the same time, how? which is which wow. it was like uh, very, very ambitious for its time. And I think uh, it was hard to get funding. It was, you know, it was a play where we had to go to make that business model work. Mm -hmm. We had to kind of be Instagram and we were in the wrong, we were in the wrong kind of city for that being in DC because yeah. here people are more interested in funding, you know, like uh, startups that have revenue on day one, um, more in a B2B type model or an enterprise model. Right. And so I'm sorry, that's, uh, I got a little bit of in, a uh, little bit of uh, interference here in the car. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> so um, anyway, it's interesting what you say now because all this stuff about fake news. Yeah. My old news it is actually the antidote to that. Well, <laughs> like, where the heck is it, Melinda? Oh, what, what did you do with it? <laughs> What did you do with the exactly. music? Bring it back. Well, it's, it's, it, yeah, I know. Maybe I should. I, a lot of people have come out of the woodwork and said, didn't you used to do that music thing? Like, right. shouldn't you be doing that now? Yes. They're like, hmm, yeah, maybe. So, yeah, actually, I'm looking at, I'm looking at uh, different, different things um, that can be done um, around that. Because it's a really, you know, some of the one thing, you know, whatever, you, whatever your politics are or wherever you come from on the, you know, the Donald Trump issue, at least it's kind of encouraging to see people so involved. Mm -hmm. in the political process yeah. right and actually um thinking critically about their news sources i i think that's that's actually a really great development so how did you and this is i guess what i think my listeners have been waiting for in a way is how does how do you make money from social media engagement and, and that brings us to very feed how did you come up with the idea for it how does it work yeah that's great so like just to answer the first question yeah. um uh, came up with the idea for it because I realized that people were incredibly frustrated at, um, you know, they knew they had to do social media. Like everybody has to do it. And we can get into this in a moment. Right. Um, and, but, oh, I wanted to turn it from a cost center into a profits driver. And I understood how that could be done. I understood also that in the early iterations of social media, like in the 1.0 and even the 2.0 of social media, all the metrics were vanity metrics, you know? So like having a like, you know, or having a follow mm -hmm. didn't really mean much. It was hard to translate that into your bottom line. So I set out to change that. And... 
I understood also the power of influence, which was something that you touched on um, when you said that people are more likely to believe something from a friend yes. than from a brand or a business. Yeah. And that's something that we see every day, um, that everyday people um, you know, um, have tremendous influence over what their friends buy. So what Verifeed does and how it works is we analyze millions of social conversations. So say you take Twitter, you know, millions of people are going on there every day and they're not going on there to purchase anything, right? Directly. Right, right. But they are going on there and Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, all of, you know, often to just have conversations with their friends and make new friends. And in the act of having those conversations, they reveal a lot about themselves, you know, not just their demographics and location, but they also reveal a lot about what interests them, what their circumstances, you know, their hobbies, their needs, their purchasing habits, Mm -hmm. their tastes, how they feel about different products that they buy. And in the act of those conversations, they end up influencing other people in terms of what they should be buying. So one of the many things that Verifeed does is understand who your natural, not only your believers, your most likely customers are, but who's actually influencing those customers the most. And we pinpoint our efforts at really understanding those really highly leveraged people in a social conversation. And often they're just ordinary people. You, you don't have to pay celebrities or whatever. Right. Um, but they're just like regular people often. So here's an example. Yeah. We found 10 women, just ordinary women, that drove more than 9 million others to an Amazon shopping cart in four weeks of Twitter conversations. Wow. So like sit with that for a moment, like, you know, 10 to wow. 9 million. And that's because everyone, you know, say if everyone has a thousand friends and you'd like, okay, and everybody shares what you're sharing. There's mm-hmm. certain people in any conversation who are kind of the, the dominant, you know, they're, yeah, they're the catalyst. They're the, just mm-hmm. the people that seem to, you know, bind people together and, and have people go out and, you know, when they recommend things. For sure. So right. it's, it's, um, it's, honestly foolish not to know who your influencers are because those people can become your viral sales Mm. and they're doing this for you and by the way i mean i hate to admit this but they're more trusted (laughs) than your brand or business is going to be at least to begin with especially if you're a startup because you're starting like nobody knows who you are so how do you how do you you leverage that you have to make a market right for sure. How, how do you? How does it work though? In terms of like, okay, okay. So there, there are ten of these women that are sending, you know, nine million dollars worth of, uh, of this. Product. Nine million people. No, sorry, nine, nine million, million people. Pe- nine yeah. million, wow, nine million people. So how do you leverage that? Yeah, and so the first thing that we do is we understand, like, um, you know, what a company is trying to achieve. Like, what are they selling? What's the value proposition of their product or their service? Mm-hmm. Right. Who do they think they're trying to reach, right? Um, We do kind of a deep discovery. And from that, we'll start looking for those people. We'll understand their current customers if they have any. But more important than any of that, we'll understand who's already talking about wanting something or needing something that that company is already providing, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a whole bunch of people out there that already want what you're selling. They just don't know you yet. 
Okay, so do you engage them? Yeah, we do. So, so the first thing that we do is really the so, what we call the social intelligence. And that's where we understand who your customers are. Mm-hmm. So we'll create these, you know, it's kind of, this is the kind of lead gen like component of what we do. So we'll, we'll find pre-qualified customers based on their conversations and what they're revealing and like that, that match to right. the solution your product or service is providing, right? Yeah. And within those groups, we'll find the most influential. So we'll score their influence. And this is where the technology is quite predictive as well, because we can handicap if you engage with these particular 10 people, here's how many you're likely to reach and engage, you know, over the next four weeks, the next eight weeks, the next 12 weeks. And here's now what it's going to mean to your bottom line. Does this, does this work for large companies or can also like small companies and one man bands it works for, for everybody. Too? It works for everybody that needs to know their customers. Okay, and what would that cost them? Like, let's say somebody right now is listening to this and he sells guitars online, for example. Let's take him. Um, what, what would it cost him to to do that? What would his ROI typically be? Yeah. So our true north is is this. We want to um, get you 10x, right, at a tenth mm-hmm. of the cost. Wow at the tenth of the time, right? So that's mm-hmm. our true north. That's what we always aim for. And it's okay. not always those kind of multiples because everybody's a little bit different and this is a highly custom service. Yeah. But since it's someone who's um uh you know uh you know a startup, um yeah, selling guitars online. So first of all, you want to find all the people who are talking about playing a, a guitar, wanting to learn to play the guitar, mm-hmm. wanting to get better at the guitar, you know, loving music. Maybe they have like, maybe they're teenagers or maybe they're moms that are looking for good guitar lessons for their kids, right? <laughs> There's so many different amazing, ways right? to look, look for those people, right? And yeah. you look for other correlations, that kind of thing. You look for people who are talking about singing, but they now they want to also learn the guitar. Yeah, whatever. It could be a, a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So we're priced really depending on how many audiences you need to dig into and what the kind of, you know, volume is. So, you know, it can really range, um, you know, quite a bit depending on the company. We have a company right now that has more than 10 different brands all reaching you know, multiple audiences. So obviously they're going to be much more of an enterprise pricing, mm-hmm. right? And for a lot of startups can't afford us, frankly. It depends on it depends on where it depends on where you're at in that trajectory. But I'd also say a lot of startups can't afford not to use us. What's and the starting why. budget? Because we're we're well, think about just the different ways that you can market your, your service. Okay. So most people now they'll do paid SEO. search or Facebook ads. Right, okay. or search engine so let's optimization. Just, let's just break that down because Verifeed believes online marketing is busted. It's broken, especially for a startup, because here's why. It takes you mm, at least three months spending quite a lot of money to, to, to figure out what your keywords are and your audience. Okay, okay. So you're going to blow $15,000 probably doing that at least. In three months and then to make any impact once you've honed that down to really get your phone right it's going to take many many more months so what we find is a lot of people who are about 15 to 18 months in they've spent two hundred thousand dollars on ads and they're really still not any closer they've got a working funnel now you know hopefully mm-hmm. um 
and they're not any closer to actually knowing their customers. So Verifeed takes that and turns it on its head. We don't say, you know, only do organic um, social. You do a mix of organic and paid. Mm -hmm. But our social intelligence accelerates the advertising process because you know your audience already. So you, one, you can already target the right people. And you can also engage with them organically so you get to know them. So you get there much faster at much less cost. So it's really a fraction. Our, if you ask about our price, it's a fraction of what it would cost if you're just doing paid ads without the social intelligence and without doing that ahead of time, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't Facebook ads have some sort of social intelligence built in? They do. And yes, you can get pretty targeted, but it's also very opaque. And so a lot of people spend a lot of time, a lot of money, and, um, and they'll tell you otherwise. But in our experience, everyone right. we know, right. it takes a lot of time to get that right. And then when you do get it right, you still don't know the individuals mm -hmm. who are buying your product because P Facebook will not let you know that information. Right, right. And you talk whereas about... With, mm -hmm. whereas we can like you actually know your individual customers and not only that you found a way to get them to drive referral traffic for you do you talk about the power of um, the authenticity and you talk about the return of authenticity what has authenticity got to do with this oh that's a great question thank you for asking that so um yeah so we found actually in our data um that companies that spoke genuinely with consumers. I mean, really spoke like human beings, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, interacted with them, took the time to connect on an individual basis, you know, were helpful, um, were, and being authentic, right? Were wildly outperforming companies that came across as salesy or self interested mm. in their posts. Um, and this is true of advertising too, by the way, yeah. um, on social channels, um, and would be driving much more engagement. Um, and so that was fascinating to us because there, our data showed the roadmap for best practice social engagement to actually get a return. And we could see it play out and prove it with our data. And so as a result of that, we crafted a system, we call it return on authenticity. Our algorithms are actually looking at how authentic a company is being in mm. its social communication. Wow. Right? So can and you give some examples though? Yeah, we award a score. Just Yeah, just let me finish how it works. But mm -hmm. um, we um, award a score out of 100, right, um, for that and show you um, for instance, how many of your followers or friends are actually potential customers. So you might log on and say, oh, it looks like only 23% of your followers are actually potential customers. You know, find some people who actually would be your customers and will will give you a whole bunch of individual leads and then show you how to interact with them on an authentic basis. And you'll see that as you do that, your score begins to go up and we tie that directly back to what kind of impact um, uh, in terms of engagement and also what that impact is on your on your bottom line. Hmm. Interesting. What, what are some of the factors that you take into account? 
Oh, a lot of them. So I, um, so just as I was saying before, you know, we're looking at um, the the how off some of them are very, uh, you know, both quantitative and qualitative. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we would be looking at does a company take the time to actually interact, um, you know, one with their or consumers? How responsive are they to consumer questions? For instance, do they do tweets and posts that are helpful? Do they engage people to a sale, like uh, more like enrollment selling, mm-hmm. right? Or are they just salesy? Are they just kind of pushing stuff, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know what I mean? Um, and and also we look at things like voice, and that's kind of some of the some of the things we're looking at, and our algorithms are looking at to actually understand how authentic someone was be- is being. And on the fl- and also are they speaking with a human voice? Like are they speaking like a regular person? Um, right. And. Yeah, on the flip of, side of it, on the return side, we look at the impact of that in terms of how many people are they engaging, how many people are like clicking on their their link, you know, that kind of stuff. And obviously, we can tie it to point of sale data if a company that's working with us allows us to see their point of sale data. So that's sometimes difficult to do with Amazon because they don't share it. Right. Um, but when we work, but when when we work with Amazon sellers, and those Amazon sellers are, you know, we work in very very this is like a highly it's a technology but it's also a highly custom service as well so we work with people to really show that return really interesting can you talk about the influencer social ecosystem and and also how it can help um your clients the influence of a social ecosystem um Mm -hmm. well really social by definition is is a is 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 a because it's a network inherent in any network is the ability to have a multiplier effect Okay. Inherent in it is leverage. So if you're doing email marketing, it's still one-on-one, right? It's just mm-hmm. a one-on-one thing. It can't. Nobody's going to share an email with tens of thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So social is just a different canvas to play because it it has leverage, and if you know how to uh, exploit that leverage, you can get again, you know, ten x mm. the result, tenth of the time, tenth of the cost. Right, and that's why YouTube videos versus Facebook Live, it looks like Facebook Live is, is so much more powerful right now because if I do a Facebook Live and then I get 10 people sharing it, that's, you know, 10, 10, that's 10 new networks that I tap into like immediately, whereas on YouTube, people are not really going to be sharing that with their, you know what I'm saying? It's not normal that someone just shares exactly. it on their, on their Facebook. That's exactly, that's exactly right, and that's the reason why Twitter bought Periscope. Um, same Mm. thing and and why Facebook invented Facebook live as a response to that because it's very very effective and very viral Um, so you know when you see those Facebook lives and you see all the kind of people you you see evidence of engagement you see people you know all the hearts flying across the screen and the and the you know and the thumbs up the likes Mm -hmm. okay that's very powerful because people look at that and they want to join that too so they share that with their friends so you know um, you know, just, just mathematically, you know, play that out. If everyone has even only a hundred friends and each person shares with their hundred friends and then those hundred, those hundreds of people share with their hundreds of friends hmm. and within minutes, that's how things go viral. Okay. But what we're doing is we're making viral, like, so viral up until now 
honestly has been a crapshoot. Like you can't, nobody knows <laughs> right. what's going to go viral right. or not go viral, right? Right. But with the social intelligence, with actually taking the time to really understand your customers or your target customers or the influencers by understanding them already in terms of what they're talking about and who you're aiming for, you can craft a message and an offer and a strategy that you know is actually going to be is actually going to resonate with those people. Interesting. Okay, so you're you're increasing your chances of being able to get that viral uplift. And that really is one of the biggest differences about what we do. So like you could think of us as social 3.0 because <laughs> we're we're sort of merging this like this big data, this very highly targeted big data approach um, and and predictive technology and being really able to understand that um, um, you know with all the sort of best practice engagement that that we know, you know, um, certainly from, you know, sort of the best um, interactive journalism. Um, mm. When you combine those things, it's incredibly powerful. Well, what do you see as the future of, of social media? Do you think it will take over from, from, from so, uh, search engine optimization and YouTube? Um, you know, it already has. It really? already has because Google has Google has changed its algorithm. Amazon has changed its algorithm where social now is one of the increasingly biggest factors hmm. of how you rock the SEO. Interesting. Um, so, so if you're not on social, you're really, really losing out. See, these things, I mean, one of the things that's happening just like w- with like uh, – you know, um, I mean, you know, like it's almost like the the uh, our technology is already on some sort of quantum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's changing so fast, is what I'm saying, right? right? That that it's hard to predict with a straight face exactly what's going to happen. But but our our connected world, right? Wh- when you think about things like wearable technology and Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. And um, all the different sensor type apps and robotics and artificial intelligence, and you connect all that up with social, we live in a highly connected connected world. And it doesn't make sense to market one on one if you can personalize at scale. And so that really is the, the future trend of how do you get the right content? to the right person at the right time. Like to me, that's really the holy grail and that's where we're going, but you can't go there without knowing people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you think about it for a moment, let's stand back for a second and think, how do you make a friend in real life? (laughs) Like, I don't know, Daniel, how do you make a friend in real life? What do you do? Uh, I throw a really cool party. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I throw a cool party. Okay. So, I mean, whatever. But where I'm going, I'm just where I'm going with this is I, that I would you, just say you, hi. you ask would them, be, you ask them yeah. questions. You start to interact. You find something that you have in common with that person. Mm-hmm. Right? So, having the data at your fingertips really allows you to do that without being blind. You know what I mean? Uh, without, it takes all the guesswork out of marketing. Kind of, you know already what kind of question or what you might have in common and how to start, how to kickstart a conversation mm. and kind of seed 
the beginnings of a movement, if you will, or like yeah. at least a group of people that has common ground and they start talking about something, they discover like a product together, all right? They feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, and and before you know it, you have this kind of viral um, impact, um, you know that that uh, you really want to see. Obviously, I don't I don't know why any I don't know why anyone wouldn't do this honestly because right. I mean it has such a power. I have a question here from Facebook. Um, he asks, if you're in a B2B business that is only interesting to most people when they happen to be in the market for that product or service, what's the best way to develop content that will still be interesting and engaging, but without deviating too far from your industry? Yeah, so that's a great question. And again, it's just something I've been saying, know who you're talking to. So you don't have to talk to everybody. You only have to talk to people who are going to be your customers. So know who they are, understand them, and create content that's relevant to them based on knowing them, knowing who they are. Um, and that applies to a B2C business, a B2B business, a, a nonprofit, a cause, really any anything, um, right? So mm -hmm. it can be content that you know is interesting to them, but it's also relevant to the service and the value that you provide. Really cool. So if, if someone's listening to this and they're very interested in Verifeed, what do they have to do next to, to try it out? Is there a demo? Is there a, how do they, how do they uh, take action? Yeah, so a couple things. I mean, the first thing to do is really just get in touch with us. And so, you know, email like info at verifeed.com. Um, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we, we usually will take it right from there. We usually start out with like an assessment. Um, yep. We do the assessment and then we get into the social intelligence and then we get into the implementations. Um, and then pretty soon we're going to be our ROA tool, uh, return on authenticity or ROA get it kind of like your ROI your <laughs> ROA. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, uh, in private beta right now. And so at the right time, um, that is going to be, um, unleashed to like, so if people want to do that and they want to apply to be one of our private beta testers, mm. they can email, um, ROA at verifeed.com and that's a pretty cool deal actually because you in exchange for really helping us improve um, the tool and make it really really awesome and make our artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms just really like sing you get grandfathered rates for life at like 50% off wow. um, which is a pretty awesome right so if anyone out is out there and really wants to be one of our first like you know, private beta users, that's a cool offer. So just email us at ROA at verifeed.com. And otherwise, you know, for the more custom service work we do, um, that's the best way to go to. And you can go to our website, verifeed.com, and you can book a free consult um, with me as well. So, um, cool. you know, that's another, that's another uh, route to go do that. And those will all be in the show notes as well at danielgeffen.com forward slash 64. Um, and just before we go, this has been awesome, uh, Melinda. You say that surrounding yourself with yes men is the number one mistake entrepreneurs make. What do you mean by that? Oh, God. Yeah, because you really need a lot of different perspectives and you need to be challenged. I mean, all of us as entrepreneurs, we all we get so excited and, you know, entranced 
with our own ideas, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I'm guilty yeah. of this too, right? Yeah, yeah. You, get, you get pretty, you know. Um, but it's really great to have other perspectives and always be learning because the, the, this is a market that's changing so fast. Hmm. And you want to surround yourself with with people that bring different skills and different perspectives to the table. It just makes you stronger. That said, though, it's really, really important for any team to be really aligned on mission and vision, you know, so you're all going in the same direction, but bringing different, different, uh, different skills and talents to the party. Wow. Amazing. Well, Melinda, what's the best way for my listeners to get in touch with you? Is there any uh, um, so Twitter? Best, best way is just info at verify.com and I'll get okay. it. Okay, cool. And in terms of like uh, social handles? Oh, right. So um, <laughs> um, on Twitter, I am a Verifiate. Uh, so V, because someone's sitting on our Verifiate, someone's squatting on the Verifiate right now. So <laughs> uh, we're working on that. Anyway, so uh, Verifiate, uh, V-E-R-I-A-T-E on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook, um, Verifeed, um, and also uh, Melinda Whitstock. Um, LinkedIn, Melinda Whitstock. So uh, you can catch me in any of those places. Amazing. Melinda, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. Uh, Thank you to all my fellow brain pickers. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.